I'll be doing our scripture reading this morning. Uh, this morning it comes from Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we go. All right, please uh, join me in a word of prayer. God, we, we want to see your glory. With so many things going on around us, confusing things, frustrating things, frustrating things that don't have an end in sight, we are hungry to see you, to see your glory, to see you do something miraculous to see you change our situation. Like Moses, we just wanna see you. Lord, show us who you are, reveal yourself to us today and help us to keep looking for you as we go out from here. In your name we pray, amen. This conversation between God and Moses is one of the most intimate exchanges between these two that we as readers are privileged to witness. Uh, the, the tone of this conversation between them has a, has a feel of a, of a domestic quarrel between a long married couple who is having a particularly trying time with their kids. Maybe some of you are, are thinking, I thought that tone sounded familiar. Uh, <laughs> This is, this is what's going on between God and Moses. Because what happened just before this passage, this, this is Exodus 33. In Exodus 32, we get the story of the golden calf, which maybe you've heard before. You know, in these last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Exodus. And we see God choosing his people Israel, who are slaves in Egypt. We see God coming to the rescue, freeing them from slavery bringing them to the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea for them, 
we see God walking with his people through the desert, providing manna and bread in the wilderness, caring for their every need, bringing them to Mount Sinai, which is where our story takes place. And God brings Moses up, up to the mountain to, to give them the law, to give them the Ten Commandments, to sort of official, make official this covenant relationship between God and Moses. And while they're up there, the people at the bottom of the mountain get panicky. They lose faith. They freak out. And they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and say, we don't know where God is anymore. We, we need you to give us a God that we can see. A God that's bright and shiny and who, who we can carry with us. Not a God who's going to go up on the mountain and we can't see anymore. And so Aaron gives in to this request and creates this golden calf, this statue of a, of a golden baby cow that the Israelites now decide is going to be their God. Well, when Moses and God do come down the mountain and they see the Israelites worshiping and praying to this false God, this golden calf, imagine what emotions must have come up within God at seeing this after everything that they'd been to. This is like a pretty out of context thing. This kind of story doesn't always happen in our lives, but I like to think that it would be similar uh, to a family where, you know, mom and dad, the, the, the parents go out for a romantic evening they go out to have a date and they leave their, their teenage kids at home. And uh, the parents go out and they, they have this wonderful evening, candlelit dinner, you know, great food, great wine. And on their way home, they see smoke rising. And as they get closer and closer to home, they start to, they realize this is, this is our home. And they, they, pull up, they pull up to their house and they see their children standing outside the home with kerosene and lighters and the house is going up in flames. And not only that, but they're loading a getaway car so that these kids can run away. Can you imagine what a parent's response to that would be? There would be so many emotions. Anger, what are you doing? This is our home that we live in, that we've built together, and you're torching it. You're, you're burning this thing up. Why are you doing that? Uh, there would be fear. You could have hurt yourself. I love you. Why are you doing this? You could have been caught in the fire. You could have been caught in the house. There's a fear element there. And there's a hurt there. You know, I've, I've cared for you. I've taken care of you. I love you. I've done this for you again and again and again. Why are you destroying this and running away after everything I've done for you? There's all of these emotions that come up. I think that's sort of what God experiences when he and Moses come down the mountain and they see the Israelites worshiping another god, ready to leave, to turn their back on God, and, and, and own this new creation and head out to the promised land. And so God has a very, uh, I think, very interesting response to this that kind of doesn't necessarily fit with our clean and tame image that we often create of God. After this, God essentially says to Moses, you know what? We had these plans to go to the promised land, but I don't know if I can go with you anymore because I might just lose my temper with these people. Instead, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you guys. They'll pave the way. They'll go to the promised land. They'll clear out all the people. You can just waltz right in. You can have everything that you want. Everything that I promised I would give you, I will give you. 
You can have this land, but I don't think I can go with you on the journey because honestly, I think I just need some space right now. I think a lot of us can relate to that. I just need some space to cool off because after seeing something like that, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in this moment, Moses does something really interesting. He pushes back. He pushes back on God. And they have this really, really interesting exchange. And I think it's this a really, really perfect example of how healthy conflict leads to deeper intimacy in a relationship. How healthy conflict can lead to deeper intimacy. It reminds me of... Uh, <laughs> When Genevieve and I were first dating, and I was talking to Pastor Dave, uh, a really close friend, and I was saying, you know, this Genevieve girl, she's, she's pretty awesome. Like, I think she, she might be, you know, like, the one. And, and he asked me, like, oh, have you guys had, like, your first fight yet? And I'm like, no, we never fight. It's awesome. It, it's perfect. Like, we, we get along so well. We never argue, and we never fight. Like, it's such a wonderful relationship. And he tells me like, well, talk to me after you guys have had your first fight. And, uh, and sure enough, not that long after that, I don't even remember what it was, but we got into some conflict, some argument, some fight, and it hurt and it sucked because arguments and conflict always hurt and always kind of suck. But when you figure out how to work your way through it and how to reconnect on the other side of an argument, on the other side of conflict, it deepens the relationship. And, and what I thought was this fantastic conflict-free relationship before was actually deepened and made better by the arguments and conflicts that we learned to work through. I think the same goes for our relationship with God. And the same can go with our friendships, our marriages, our co-working relationships. When you learn how to have healthy conflict, it deepens the relationship and it increases the intimacy. You know, a, um, a lack of conflict isn't always a good thing. Oftentimes, that's actually a sign of an impersonal relationship. Uh, I, I've heard a preacher use the example of the movie um, The Stepford Wives as an example of impersonal relationships. The, the movie is a story where these husbands have put microchips in their wives' brains and, and these wives are completely obedient and dutiful. They say, yes, dear, yes, dear, to everything and have dinner made and ready whenever the husbands come home and say yes to everything that their husbands want because they're essentially programmed that way. And this is a conflict-free marriage. This is a conflict-free relationship. But is it an intimate relationship? Is it a personal relationship? Not, not even close. A lack of conflict is not a sign of a, of a personal relationship. Often it's a sign of an impersonal relationship because conflict means being vulnerable, means being honest about where your differences exist and, and looking openly at where those points of friction and contention are and dealing it with it together, you know, working together to overcome this conflict and then on the other side, you learn how to reconnect when there's been a disconnect. That's what Moses sort of uh, exemplifies here in, the, in his relationship with God. And that's what God invites us to. 
You know, I, I think if, if you look at your relationship with God, if you're a Christian and, and you say, it's great, we never argue. We get along on everything. God agrees with me on everything. You, you might not actually have the personal relationship with God that you think you do. You might have a Stepford God who just says, yes, dear, yes, dear, to everything that you want and who agrees with you and doesn't challenge you and doesn't have this intimate, healthy conflict that deepens a relationship. In this conflict, we see God revealing uh, some very telling things about his personality uh, and showing us what kind of personal God he is. Uh, one commentator writes about what we see in God uh, in this passage, and he says, what kind of God is this? who blows up and threatens extinction and then lets himself be talked out of it. This sounds way too volatile, too emotional, too, well, human. No, not human, but a real person. What kind of God is this? Well, it's not the golden calf of pagan religion, the crude creation of our own hands. It's not the unmoved mover of pagan philosophy, the sophisticated creation of your mind. Not a God who can't feel or talk or think. No, the God of the Bible is a very personal God with deep thoughts and powerful emotions and life-changing words. That's the kind of God we have, a personal God who doesn't fit into our boxes of what we expect and doesn't respond to us with a yes, dear, yes, dear, but a God who invites us into healthy conflict in order to deepen intimacy who shows his personality. So what does this quarrel between Moses and God reveal about God? Well, if we just look at the words that are used in this brief passage, it's only 11 verses long. But in those 11 verses, the words to see, to know, to find, to reveal, to show, are used over 25 times. In 11 verses, we get 25 instances of seeing, of knowing, of showing, of finding. This tells us that God knows us personally. Like God said to Moses, I know you by name. God knows us and God is knowable. God finds us and God is findable if we are looking. That's what this passage tells us. It also shows us the nature of God's love. In verse 19, uh, God says, uh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And that word compassion is a very, very interesting choice of words in Hebrew. It's the word rahem, or raham, which means to love deeply, to love intimately, this close, holding kind of love because it comes from the same root as the word raham, which means womb. When he says, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, it's the kind of love that a mother has for the child she's carrying in her womb. This deeply intimate, connected, caring kind of love. That's the kind of love that God says he has for his people. And we get a lot of metaphors and analogies of God as father, in the Bible. And so whenever there's an instance where we get to see the maternal love of God, 
the motherly love of God. I think it's really important to point that out, that we see God loves his people with the kind of love that a mother has for the child she's carrying in her womb. God will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. He will love his people as a mother loves the child she is carrying in her own body. We see also that God is a fool for love, as Ellen Davis puts it, one of my one of my favorite authors. She writes this um, this little take on on our passage today. She says, "Above all else, God is a lover, and every true lover resists being taken for granted, yet longs to be desired." Show me your glory, Moses says. And God goes along with the request, because frankly, God is flattered. At this moment, it is not Moses, the religious political leader of Israel speaking, but Moses, the mystic, the ardent lover of God. The public need has been met. God has promised twice already to go up with the people into the promised land. And you would think Moses would be satisfied, but instead he, he presses for one more thing a favor for himself alone, a glimpse of God's exquisite beauty. Of course, God is flattered. And I love this part. Who would not be thrilled to know that a lover through many years and many domestic crises still finds one desirable, desirable just for oneself when the children's needs have been met and there is nothing to be sought or gained but the simple joy of intimacy. It is only in that request for a private revelation that God feels the purity of Moses' love. Of course, God capitulates, happily, even to the point of indignity. You know, let me put you in this rock and, and you can watch me, my back, as I pass by. Oh, uh, for as the whole Bible makes undeniably clear, God is a perfect fool for love. Fool enough even to become human to live and love as we do, and to weep because he loves, fool enough to suffer and die on a cross. And with that, she's pointing ahead to Jesus, as this passage does, as, as essentially every passage in, in the Bible does. It's pointing to Jesus, the one who loves us with a deep, compassionate love. It's pointing to, to Jesus who after, uh, <laughs> even when we try to burn the house down and are loading up the getaway car and Jesus finds us in that situation, he does not berate us, he does not shame us and does not punish us. But God in Jesus invites us into an intimate relationship where there's forgiveness, where the, the cost of damages, I mean, you know, you burn down a house, that's going to cost. The cost of those damages, he takes on himself. Instead of saying, you caused this mess, you got to pay for it. Forgiveness is taking the cost of that on himself. Forgiveness isn't just, oh, it's fine. I don't care. You messed up. Big deal. I'll get over it. Forg <laughs> if you've ever been hurt by somebody, and you forgive them. You know that that doesn't mean that the hurt is gone. It simply means that you
pain is gone. That's God taking the hurt, the pain, the fear, the frustration that a parent would feel towards their child who is burning down the house and trying to run away. That is him absorbing and taking that pain and anger on himself instead of paying it back to the person to whom it ought to be directed. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. And in his resurrection, he invites us to experience a restored and forgiven and intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In, in our passage today, God promised Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. When Jesus left his disciples, he said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God will not leave us like a mother cannot leave the child whom she loves in her own body. But God invites us into an intimate relationship where healthy conflict is possible. And so if you want a, a deeper and more personal relationship with God, talk to me after you guys have had your first fight and see what that does to that relationship, how that can deepen the intimacy between you and him. With that, I've got a couple reflection questions that I'm gonna try to share on the screen. Uh, and then we're gonna close with a prayer that, that I'll also put on the screen. Um, it's from a website called Black Liturgies and it was incredibly fitting for our passage today. So take a minute and, um, and think on, on these discussion questions here. Please pray with me. God of presence, we are thankful that you are the one who met Moses' deepest anxieties with an assurance of your nearness, that you revealed yourself in a new way to revive his belief in a season of uncertainty is not lost on us. So too, would you grant us a glimpse of you that will hold our belief when we are terrified that you will abandon us. We confess that we too often expect you to meet our doubt with explanations and proof 
when in fact your answer comes to us as a proclamation of nearness and rest. Help us to be people capable of naming our fears to you and who brazenly ask for you to make your nearness apparent. And as that near and present glory passes before us, let us take hold of your mysterious rest knowing that the answer to our insecurities is not to do or say more to make you pleased with us, but to be still and dream in the arms of our maker. Amen. <laughs>